Can you name three people in the room that are outside of the company you came with? Three people in the room who look for you every Sunday that you're here. I'll wait. Three people in the room who look for you every Sunday, but they are not in the company you came with. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes? Thank you. Tim, thank you. Two people, can you name two people in the room, not in the company you came with, who would drive to Fort Wayne to see you in the hospital if they knew something happened to you this week? Fort Wayne, 45 minutes away, up through the turnstiles. Can you name them? They're not in the company you came with, but they would make a 45-minute drive to see you. Are you still there? Can you name one person in the room, not in the company you came with, uh, who would, if you were thrown in jail, would pay the bail at midnight? You could call them at midnight and say, I have been arrested, unfair charges, and they've set the bail, and I need someone to come and pay the bail. Can you name someone in the room, not in the company you came with, who would go post that bail? Are you still there? Question number four. How sure are you that you're right? Question number five, last question. Can you name three people, two people, one people, as many, that you look for every Sunday outside of the company you came with? Can you name two people outside of your circle that you would drive to Fort Wayne to see if something happened to them, that you would post the bail at midnight if they were unfairly arrested? Can you name them? A few years ago, a woman who was attending this church for a while, I met with her, and I said, do you have good friends in college church? She said, yes. I said, how many? She said, five. I said, how many of those five look for you every Sunday? She thought about it and said, none. I asked her to clarify what she meant by the term good friend. I wondered how it was someone could be a good friend and not look for you on Sunday. She said, well, they have families. They're busy. They have a lot on their mind. I let the matter slide. But I began to wonder how many in the community of College Church, how many in this room have what we would consider some of our very best friends, and in how many of them are in the room with us now. I care about that because today is World Communion Sunday, where Christian communities are gathered all over the world, some in cathedrals, some in humble little churches, some in fields, and some underground. And I'm wondering, what is a spirit-formed community? How close to what I just described would a community formed by the Holy Spirit 
come? And how is a spirit-formed community different from a human-formed community? And what difference would it really make? In Acts chapter 4, when the disciples were released from their hearing in public, verse 23 says, they returned to their own. And I'm wondering, who were their own? And how did they know that? So I started looking through the book of Acts to answer the question, what would a community of people be like if the Holy Spirit was the one who brought them together? It would not be a community that was formed by their affinity one for the other. It wouldn't be a community formed by people who just wanted to be together and they liked each other. It would be a community of people that had the same experience through the same spirit brought into the same circle. And that just feels like a more diverse and life-giving community. So I turned to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when suddenly a rushing wind comes through the room. Little tongues of fire appear over 120 people's heads. They start to speak in foreign languages. 120 of them break out of that upper room. They pour into the streets of Jerusalem where about a half a million people are gathered for the holy day. And the people on the street are amazed. They say to each other, how is it that we hear them proclaiming the wonders of God in our own language? These people don't speak our language. How are they suddenly speaking our language? Then the apostle Peter figures, with this many people watching, this be a great time for a sermon. So, <laughs> I like this guy, so he starts, he starts preaching right in the middle of this crowd, and if you read the sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 2, I mean, nobody knows where he got this insight. Peter is a glorified fisherman, and all of a sudden he's going back into the Old Testament, and he's drawing threads. Old Testament scriptures, nobody knows how he knew this. We have no idea how Peter shows no evidence of being this bright any time prior to this. But all of a sudden, when he is possessed by the Holy Spirit, he is able to bring things together with clarity and force, and his message is compelling. So by the time he's done, people, people are cut to the heart. They're not angry. He's saying hard things. He's saying, this Jesus whom... You crucified. <laughs> I was like, dial it back. It's like, you crucified him, but God raised him up and made him both Lord and Christ. And the people, instead of being offended, they're cut to the heart. And they start to say, what do we have to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. About 3,000 people do so that day, and their number is added to the 120. After that day, every day, people are being added to this newly formed community that God is bringing together. Most of them don't know each other, and most of them may not even like each other, but they are being pulled together by an experience every one of them have had. Now in Jerusalem, in little villages around that city, 
people start to gather in little circles. Just 10, 12, maybe 20 of them all over the region. And they meet every single day in someone's house. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, we get a brief outline of what happens in that house. It says there are four things all of these little communities are doing, and this becomes sort of the structure or the chassis that carries this new movement. It says they meet around the apostles' teaching. That is, there's a short list of things that the apostles strongly taught. They were ethical. You can read it today in what's called the Didache. After that, they went into a time of fellowship. Fellowship there is the word koanania. It doesn't mean they were just hanging out. Koanania was a different kind of community, unlike the ones the Romans knew. The Romans knew of the Politia, which was a political party, and the Romans knew of the Oikonomos, which was the household. But the Romans had nothing like a koanania, a family, a circle of people that gathered around a common experience in the same cause. And if you're Rome, that's dangerous. So this little circle of Christ followers are following the teaching. They're following fellowship, testimonies back and forth. Then, inevitably, somebody had a meal. And so they sat down and they shared this meal together, and then they would pray, all of them, back and forth in front of the triune God. That was the structure. I find myself leaving Acts chapter 2 thinking, okay, God, how many of our communities, how many of our groups, our circles that we're forming in college church, how many of those have teaching and fellowship and food, a meal, and how many of them really engage in, in thoughtful prayer? And then... Everything spills into Acts chapter 3, and when it does, you guys, everything hits the fan. Peter and John, who belong to this little community, go walking into the temple, and before they get through the city gate, there is a man that is lame outside the temple whose friends have carried him every day and dropped him off. They would drop him off at the temple. He was there to beg for money. And then his friends would go into the temple, which was more of a marketplace by that time. It was both a religious and a market center. And then at the end of the day, the friends would come back, pick up the crippled man, and carry him back to his home. While he's laying outside of the gate because he cannot go into the temple, Peter and John go walking by. They stop. The man says, would you give me some money? Peter looks at the man intently and says, silver or gold, we don't have that. But what we do have, we give you freely. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And then Peter reaches forth his hand and he grabs the man and he pulls him to his feet. And the Bible says his legs and his ankles are strengthened 
instantly, and the man begins to walk. Then he starts to run. Then he starts to jump. Then he starts to shout. He goes running through the gate into the temple, the city square, the public arena, with Peter and John shouting at the top of his lungs, bouncing on the heels of his feet. Everybody knows this guy. He's 40 years old. He's been begging for years. Now suddenly, he is running and shouting at the top of his lungs. Peter and John are trying to calm him down, and as the people gather, Peter starts to preach. Pause. This is where I get hungry for our church. I watch a man that is lame outside the gate, and I watch two disciples who know Jesus walk past him, and they say to him, we don't have any money, but we do have power. And they extend that power to call that man to his feet until he is running with them into the temple gates. And you guys, there is something in me, as afraid of it as I am, that wants something like that kind of power for our church community. And I'll tell you why. Because according to Paul, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. And the gospel of God is the power of salvation unto all who believe. And salvation is not just a list of mental or theological ideas. Salvation is a fully embodied experience. It changes the way a person thinks, yes, but it changes the way a person lives with their physical body in this world. Salvation, as the apostles preached it, has the power to change everything about a person. Sometimes instantly and sometimes slowly, but it radically changes a person inside and out. And when that person is changed, they are able to go into the heart of any religion, like a temple, where there are walls. And they can go through all of those barriers because God has formed a new community that is not defined by any of those distinctions. Well, by the sound of it, I might be the only one in the room that likes this. You don't know a community like that. I don't. I'm not sure we've even seen a salvation like that. We've seen salvations where people stop believing one thing and start believing another. But have we seen a full-bodied salvation? Do you see why I'm sort of hungry for this? The radical transformation 
You see it? All would be well here if the story would stop. It doesn't. Peter, seeing the opportunity, goes into his second sermon. And in this sermon, in the middle of the temple, he starts explaining to the people that are watching him that the way this person was raised was according to the name whom he calls the Holy Righteous One that God has sent into the world. About halfway through the sermon, some of the priests overhear it, and they run over to hear what exactly Peter is saying. They don't like it. And so toward the end of Peter's sermon, they barge into the middle of the circle. They grab Peter and John, haul them off to jail. They spend the night in jail, and the following day, they hold a tribunal. Nobody knows who or how many people were there. We only know there had to be at least 23. That was a quorum. These, this was a semicircle. They sat like this in a semicircle so the judges could see each other past the accused. In the center of the semicircle, they sat Peter and John and they started interrogating them. Peter, seeing this as an opportunity for yet a third sermon, he won't stop. They make the mistake of asking him, by what authority in whose name have you done these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, steps forward and starts to preach again. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, if you're asking how this man who was lame can suddenly walk again, then let it be known to you and all of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that this man can walk for there is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. Whew. Nobody in that semicircle believes that. You understand, some of them are the very priests who crucified Jesus about 50 days ago, not even two months ago, they were responsible for the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Now they're in a semicircle, and Peter is fearlessly yet humbly telling them the truth about the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. And I make a note to myself. Maybe a spirit-formed community is a circle of people convened by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bearing witness to the name and authority of Jesus. Do you know the nerve it takes to step into the public square in America today and say to them, 
There is only one name given among people whereby you must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus of Nazareth. If somebody did that today in a public square, you'd probably consider them insensitive. You'd say they weren't paying attention to the different views that are out there. You might even say they were being a little bullish. And if you were in a bad mood, you'd say they were being a jerk. Nobody is asking you to be a jerk. I'm simply asking you to consider to what degree have you been shaped by the culture the way that I have to think that your relationship with Jesus of Nazareth is a purely private affair. No one, no one objects to you having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Where things get out of hand is when you say that in places where other beliefs are already there. That's where you start double-guessing and wondering, maybe I'm going too far. Maybe I, maybe I should back off a little bit. One more time, nobody wants you to become bullish, but I'm wondering, are we losing the capacity to speak in places where God's name is never used, fearlessly and yet humbly, that salvation is available through no other name. Peter and John will not back down. And right when they want to lock them up, the Bible says they look over and the guy they healed is still bouncing around on his feet. So, so as much as they hate the message, the miracle is exhibit A. They get, we don't like anything they're saying, but we can't deny that was the guy who begged for years and now he's up walking around. We can't bring that together. We don't like the name, but we can't deny the miracle. The power of our message is not in the cogency of its argument. The power is not in our intellect. The power of the message is that it has the power to change the whole life of someone. And that is undeniable evidence that Jesus is alive and active in this world. It never occurred to Peter and John that Jesus was a theological category. Never occurred to them that he was a personal, private belief. They knew that even though he was not visibly in the room, he was always in the room, always working. It was 
uncommon for them to call Jesus' name. They never felt like it was a religious category. So the circle of scholars looked at these two fishermen and frustrated. We don't like the argument. We can't deny the miracle. They asked everybody to leave. And then when they got alone, this 20-some scholars pulled their thoughts together and they said something like this. We hate what they're saying, but we can't deny that that is the guy and that he is better. And if we throw these two in jail, why, the mob will kill us. So we better let them go. So they call them in. And they do the only thing power structures can do when their back's against the wall. They threaten them. (laughs) So they threaten Peter and John, if you continue this kind of stuff, whatever. Peter and John wait till the speech is over, and then they're released. And when they're released, they go back to their community. They don't go home. They don't go find a lawyer. They go back to their community. They go back to the only community they know. Who can we turn to at midnight when we're finally let go? Who would post bail? Who would drive to see us? Who would miss us if we were not there? They go back to that circle of people and they report everything that these priests have said to them. And when they hear it, the people start to pray. And when they pray, they ask for only one thing. And this is remarkable after all they've been through. They do not pray for justice. I would. They do not pray for protection. You would. They do not pray for success. We would. They pray for boldness. That's it. They won't stop. They just say, Lord, grant us boldness that we would fearlessly proclaim the word while you perform miracles. And you guys, the Holy Spirit falls on that little community of believers And suddenly, every one of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, it's multiplied. (laughs) You thought you had trouble with Peter and John. We just released an entire circle of people like that into the community. There is no telling where this will go. I've not come this morning to tell you anything. I've come to ask you, do you belong to a community whose sole function is to make you a better witness to the name of Jesus Christ? I've come to ask you if our definitions of community in America have been taken over by sociological categories where we think of community primarily as a sense of belonging, 
when for the disciples it was primarily for witness. The belonging happened on the way to the witness. I'm sort of wondering if what we're striving for, if what we feel is lacking in our life is a sense of belonging, and so we turn to communities to give us something we cannot find somewhere else. And yes to all of that, you guys. We all need to be part of communities like that. But I wonder if a spirit-formed community is that and the capacity to bear witness to the name and authority of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm wondering if you are consistently using the name in places where it is never heard. I wonder if even in Christian universities you hear the name sometime during the week. I know that that may be the foundation of your office, and I know that you may all be believers, but what really is the difference in believing something, though never talking about it, and not believing it at all? Are you part of an organization, a community, where the name of Jesus is used consistently? He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. There was nothing made that he did not make, and he himself is the head of the people of God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all of history ends at the feet of one named Jesus? Do you believe he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega? And if he is, then everything you're dealing with this week, I think, is somewhere between the first and the last. It is somewhere within the purview of the name. Can I talk to the body this morning and tell you the one you believe in is the one who rules the world. You don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to push people farther than they want to go. Everybody at their own speed and everyone with full agency. Nobody coerces anybody.
but there is only one name. I imagine all across our city, we have shepherds already embedded in every discipline. We have them in hospitals, in offices, boardrooms, locker rooms, living rooms, courtrooms, jails. We have shepherds from College Church all over these sites. But I sometimes wonder if one is not enough. I wonder if there was a small community, a spirit-formed community in every one of these disciplines that would meet together. And after about three minutes of teaching, share some testimonies, maybe eat, then pray. And I wonder what would happen if the Holy Spirit would fall on that cluster of people.